Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. Ultimately, you kind of want to be sympathetic. On the other hand, you want them to understand that the verdict has to be based upon the evidence and nothing but the evidence. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. As always, this is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing in Midtown Atlanta? I am. I am good. I can't. I can't complain, despite the fact that I was just complaining before we started <laughs> yeah. recording. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I can't complain. How are you? Uh, Steve? Oh, you know, I, I, I'm good. I, uh, you know, the interesting thing is, I was just up in North Carolina last week, and uh, so driving back from North Carolina to uh, through South Carolina and Georgia. Uh, you wouldn't know, at least I could, you wouldn't know that there's a pandemic going on. Um, everybody was out. Nobody's <laughs> wearing a mask. I, very little social distancing from what I could tell. So, uh, you know. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't really, I haven't gotten out. I haven't gotten out too much the past couple of weeks. So <laughs> right, right. I haven't really, um, I haven't really seen, I went to the grocery store and a lot of people were still wearing masks. So I yeah. was, I was pleased to see that. It, you're like where I live in Savannah, people are still doing that, but just up in South Carolina, North Carolina, they don't, they're, they're not, they're not doing that. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, let me go ahead and introduce our guest. Uh, we have a great guest on today. Uh, we have uh, Michael Levine from Long Island, New York. Uh, Michael is a partner in Rappaport, Glass, Levine, and Zulo in Long Island, New York, and you can look up their law firm at rglzlaw.com. And Michael, I also saw that you have another website that you can uh, find you on called Motorcycle Mike ESQ, Esquire. Correct. Um, so, uh, so welcome on to the show. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate it. And thank you, Yvonne. Um, and you know, and we'll talk about this more. But I, the case that we're talking about here is uh, is a motorcyclist uh, involved incident. Um, so it, I take it that that's a, a good part of your practice up there in uh, in Long Island. Yeah, you know, uh, I ride a motorcycle. As crazy as that may sound, <laughs> uh, and have for many years. Uh, and uh, in the community on Long Island metropolitan area, I'm known as Motorcycle Mike. Uh, and as a result, uh, a lot of my practice is represented motorcycle accident victims. Yeah, yeah. Other areas of law, but certainly motorcycle cases is a pretty big part of my practice. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let me tell everybody a little bit about your background um, so that they can know who that we're talking to. But, uh, but Michael, you have been the president <laughs> of the uh, New York State Trial Lawyers Association, uh, sit on the New York State Grievance and Judicial Screening Committee, um, so I'm sure you hear a lot of interesting things that way. Um, you, uh, I think you're just recently stepping down as the mayor of your uh, town of Oldfield, uh, New York. Is that right? Yeah, not yet, because okay. by virtue of uh, our governor's uh, executive orders, uh, they postponed elections uh, at the state until September 5th, even though my term was done in March. So. Uh, I'm sticking on uh, <laughs> September 15th, and then I'm going to ride off into the sunset. Right, right, right. Exactly. Well, at, at least this is a very chill, like, extension to your uh, to your term, you know, just like very chill, calm times right now. Yeah, you know, I'm at, listen, I've been doing it for 12 years and now almost seven months and, or six months, and uh, I was looking over, to t look, looking to turn the helm over 
even before the end of my term, but uh, our governor has uh, delayed things. But uh, I'm looking forward to getting out of politics for a little while. I'm, I'm sure. I, I, I wanted to mention that uh, I was reading uh, one of the articles about uh, about you and um, and your. I guess the person who's coming in or who looks like they're going to be the next mayor of Oldfield uh, when you had a unusually contentious. Um, I guess, meeting about some things going on there in Oldfield, he said that you were unreasonably patient. Uh, yeah. The whole thing. <laughs> yeah. You know, you have to let people be heard. Even though, uh, you, you, you know, you want to bite your, your lip. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Exactly. You have, to reserve, you, have to be, you have to reserve your feelings about what you want to say. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Uh, well, and they, diplomatic. I, sh- I should also say that you're a member of both the New York and the New Jersey bars and um, and have been named as uh, a preeminent lawyer by Martindale Hubble every year since 2005, recognized as a super lawyer every every year in New York Magazine since 2010. Uh, you were named as Man of the Year by the United Cerebral Palsy uh, Association of Suffolk County. Uh, you were inducted to your high school athletic F- hall of fame and, uh, in college, I know that you're the captain of your tennis team. So I, I'm imagining it's for tennis. Um, it's and, for tennis, yes. yeah. And that you, uh, you're on the board of directors for the New York bar association. And then I'm saving the last, uh, Yvonne is that, uh, Michael is a 1983 graduate of the law school at Mercer university. Oh, Wow. Does that, re- does that resonate with you, Yvonne? I know you're in, <laughs> in Atlanta, but you know um, Mercer? I, I did not attend Mercer, but I just, okay. um, I get excited to hear anything, George. Okay, yeah. yeah. Well, we, Every we, now we, and then I can still yeah. put on that Southern accent for y'all. That's right, that's right. <laughs> we'll 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 over the years, <laughs> well, bo- both of our uh, partners, uh, uh, Jeff Harris and Jed Mann, are both graduates of Mercer Law, and uh, and we know plenty of people who, uh, who came out of that law school, and uh, I mean, uh, great, great school for lawyers. That's for sure. Definitely was. I had a great experience there. Uh, and, uh, but for the fact that I have family up in New York, uh, I would have probably spent some many, many years down in uh, Georgia or in that neck of the woods. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, yeah, I want to, I want to go ahead and introduce the case that we're talking about. As I told everybody already, it, it involves a motorcycle collision, which I wanted to uh, talk to you a little bit more about, but the name of the case, uh, was Kevin Barrett versus, uh, James and Eleanor Smith. Uh, it was tried in Suffolk County, New York in January of 2018, involving a, an incident on September 25th of 2013. And the result of the uh, case was a $5,750,000 verdict uh, for a, uh, a motorcycle collision that, uh, and we'll talk about this in more detail, but resulted in the uh, amputation of uh, Kevin's uh, right leg. At first, I think it was below the knee, or, or and, then, and then you described a through the knee am- amputation so that it was, uh, sounds like the amputation was just above the knee, uh, which can cause, as we know, can cause uh, complications with regard to uh, prosthetics and Yeah, it was care. right at the knee, so he was still able to, to hinge. He, he didn't lose that hinge of the knee. Okay. But uh, the worst amputations that I've seen in my career, the above the knee amputations, I mean, they just create so many problems. But Kevin yeah. have, not obviously the the horrific nature of his acts and injuries. 
even have a above knee amputation. Great. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they, they cause all kinds of complications as they far do. as care and infections and, um, you know, and it, uh, I've got a client right now who's undergone multiple surgeries since he's above the knee and, and, um, right. and it keeps getting higher. And, you know, so the doctors do everything they can to, you know, save as much of his leg. Right. But uh, let me talk a little bit about the, uh, the collision. Sure. Um, uh, Kevin uh, was 33 years old. He's an air traffic controller, enjoyed riding his motorcycle. He was out for uh, what sounded like a leisurely ride. Uh, and as he was um, uh, driving along the road, a driver uh, turned left in front of him. And, uh, and he struck the right back quarter panel of that uh, truck. That was uh, uh, Miss Smith who was driving that. And it, what I thought was uh, pretty, I mean, amazing and and interesting about it is that he strikes it with enough force to obviously cause severe damage to his leg dent the the truck but he's able to maintain control of his motorcycle steer it off the road actually get the kickstand down uh before he basically uh collapses realizing right. that he's uh suffered this severe injury and, and is basically bleeding out right there on the road correct um, so, I mean, that just shows sort of a amazing uh, ability and reaction by him and, in, in, you know, what had to be just, a, 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 you know, a harrowing situation. Yeah, I can, I can only imagine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, and then the way you described some of the, uh, some of the uh, collision is that it actually, uh, did you say that there was a piece of the, his bone that was actually knocked off of his leg and left somewhere on the roadway? On the roadway, yes. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Um, and then some very quick, uh, quick thinking good Samaritans, it sounded like, stopped and, um, and were, were able to uh, stop the bleeding. And then they were able to get him to the hospital where, as we said, he uh, had such a bad um, uh, uh, fracture to his leg and, and had done so much damage to his leg that they had to do a, th uh, I think it was a through the knee op amputation. And then later on, as he w went through some complications, they actually had to go, I guess, right, right at the knee or just a little bit above the knee. Uh, right. Yeah. Um, well, uh, you know, one thing I, I wanted to ask you about, I think we've, uh, Bond, remind me, I think we've talked about at least one other case that was in Suffolk County, or at least uh, I know we've talked about a, a couple in Long Island, but what, what type of county is that as far as, um, as far as, you know, uh, would it be considered conservative or, um, uh, you know, tougher maybe to get a, a plaintiff's verdict? And then I guess one thing that I was wondering, you know, when you're choosing a jury, are you seeing much bias to, uh, against motorcycle riders or, you know, when you talk to juries? Yeah, so uh, Suffolk County is a very conservative venue. Okay. Um, we have people that uh, sit during jury selection with their hands across their waist. And I always know that that's a person who's somewhat guarded and um, they don't like giving money uh, because they almost feel like it's coming out of their own pocket. Uh, so we have to work with that. Uh, it's uh, a much tougher venue than a lot of our other cases that are in the metropolitan area. Uh, so uh, we learned to deal with that and um, don't try to offend uh, their sensibilities. Right, right. Um, and, uh, you know, just it's where a good part of my firm's practice is. So we just uh, know uh, 
how far we can push the jury without offending their sensibilities. Right, right. And then how about the issue of, of motorcycle riders? Sometimes you wonder, uh, you know, how juries view uh, motorcycle riders, that they're sort of uh, putting themselves at risk. Is, did you see uh, that kind of uh, bias in the, in the jury pool? Yeah, you know, so uh, there's a, an old uh, saying, I lose, I'm, I'm a, uh, a reptile now, a, a Keenan Trial Institute disciple. Right, right. Uh, they refer to uh, motorcyclists as organ donors. Right, yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, a lot of jurors think, you know, you get on a motorcycle, all rules are off the table. You take a risk uh, of being seriously hurt. Anytime you're on a motorcycle, unlike when you get behind the wheel of a car. Um, but, you know, the one I've learned because I have so many motorcycle accident victims and I've tried several motorcycle cases over the year that I try to let the jurors during jury selection know that uh, my client is not a young kid who was on uh, a what we call a crotch rocket doing wheelies down. Uh, the middle of uh, Main Street. Uh, this is a person who um, has gone to a motorcycle safety course. Uh, they um, they're wearing motorcycle gear. They got gloves on. They got boots on. Uh, they got uh, jeans on. They got uh, skins on. Sometimes a shirt that goes over the the uh, legs. Um, they're wearing DOT approved helmets uh, and. Uh, I try to let jurors know that these are people that are not the, the type of rider that we have a perception of, uh, a young kid uh, doing daredevil things on a motorcycle. Uh, so that's how I try to separate my clients from the perception that uh, jurors uh, have. And then I also, you know, it's surprising if you ask jurors during jury selection about their knowledge of motorcycles, uh, a lot of jurors will say, yeah, I ride, or I have relatives who ride. And then I ask them about their relatives, tell me about the, your relative's experience and what kind of ride would you describe your relative to be and so forth, so that they get the feeling that there are certain classifications of riders, and my rider uh, was in the classification of the more conservative, less, less risk-taker type of rider. That's something that I work on throughout the course of the whole trial. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about uh, uh, motorcycle riders and, you know, of course, you see some people who who uh, ride them unsafely. But, um, you know, they they know most motorcycle riders know that safety is an issue. So I find that a lot of them think more about safety than almost anybody else does, because uh, because they know they're putting themselves out at, in, at more risk than you would be in, in a car. So they, they know to be more careful about things. Yeah, they definitely do. And and. Uh Almost across the board, the clients that I represent are not guys who uh, got a motorcycle for their 50th birthday. Now they're riding it on uh, day three of their 50th birthday. Most of my clients have been riding motorcycles for 20, 30, 40 years. Uh, they're experienced riders. It's rare that they go down. Well, uh, and I, I, I try want, to take it. I'm, I'm sorry. sorry, but that's the what I work on during the course of trials to try to get jurors to perceive that my client is not the stereotypical rider that they perceive or motorcycle riders to be. 
And I'm sorry to interrupt you. I was just wondering if how much this jury would have thought, because what I immediately thought in reading the circumstances of the collision was this guy was clearly very skilled to me, it seemed like in operating a motorcycle, given that in this collision, his leg was basically severed. And he somehow managed to still keep control of his motorcycle and, right. and steer it off the road is just it it's impossible to imagine. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I still don't to this day don't know how he could have ever had the wherewithal to do that uh, with that type of injury. But somehow he did. Uh, but also uh, I had the benefit of representing a guy who uh, works in the air traffic tower, you know, who's making sure that planes don't crash uh, during takeoffs and landings, who's, who, who people that fly depend upon, you know, multiple times a day. This is not a guy who's prone to take risks. Uh, and I made sure that the jury understood that as well throughout the trial. Right, right. So it, it sounded like, uh, from, from what I could uh, gather, is that this trial was in two phases, that you tried your liability phase first, uh, once you got a liability finding, then you moved on to damages. W was that something that the um, that the defense had moved for? Is that that that's not the way it's normally done in New York? Yeah, no, it? that's the way it's normally done. Uh, okay, for wrongful death cases uh, on Long Island and most of the counties of New York City, uh, you have bifurcated trials. We tried that liability first, and then you go into damages. Only in practice. Uh, and wrongful death cases outside of certain counties or right. trials are bifurcated. So Yvonne, one thing I've learned in this business is that you can't go get a great trial verdict to be talked about on the Great Trials podcast unless you get the case in the first place. And that's why we're talking about digital law marketing Com. It's Digital Law Marketing. They are a great company that does website design, SEO, social media marketing, content marketing, and everything you need to market your firm online. Yeah, I mean, think about it. The first time that you hear about whether it's a lawyer or a law firm or a business or a doctor, what do people do now? You look them up. You just, you, you Google them. And so your website has to look good. Your content has to be good. And that's what digital law marketing can help you with. Yeah, and they make sure that you can be found too because you can have a great looking website, but people type into Google and you don't come up at all. They will help with that as well. And the thing that I really like about digital law marketing is that they don't go out and market for your competitors. So if you get them for your area, they won't go across the street and go advertise for a competitor or law firm. They also have such a fantastic team. They, when I made partner at the firm, they sent me flowers, which was so nice and such a personal touch. Um, they do our firm's website and for better or worse, it's very easy to find me in my headshot that I hate <laughs> right. because they're so good at what they do. Exactly. And, and you know, the thing, uh, another thing I like about them is they're, they're extremely responsive, as you said, like if you ask them to do something, they will get it done that day. And they don't overpromise. They won't tell you things just because they think you want to hear it, which Without mentioning names, I've heard from some other website marketing companies and digital law marketing will not do that. Yes, they're so, awesome. So call uh, Digital Law Marketing. You can call them at 877-916-0644 or you can look them up at digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com.
and tell them we sent you. I did see that they they tried to uh, put the blame on your client because apparently he was driving. It was a 30 mile per hour zone and he was going 40 miles per hour. Correct. He hit the rear right quarter panel of the truck that their their accident reconstructionist, I think, testified that if he had been going the speed limit, he would have been able to avoid the collision. Is that right? Correct. Okay. That's right. How how did you approach that part of the case and in, in, uh, in, in showing that, you know, that, that this is still, uh, you know, the responsibility of the defendant in that in that situation? Well, I mean, again, I, I, I focused on the fact that my client was in no rush whatsoever. He was just taking a nice leisurely ride. Uh, this is a wide open road. There was a flashing yellow at that uh, location with who made a left turn in front of my client. Uh, and, um, I think that was one of the factors that the jury, uh, thought heavily about when they found that my client was, uh, I think 35% at fault for what happened here. Uh, they felt that flashing yellow, your client missed to exceed the speed limit. And, uh, you know, I, I tell my clients, just tell the truth, right? My clients just tell the truth. It's never come back to hurt you. Uh, and even though the jury found them 35% at fault, they still, awarded him a multi-million dollar verdict. Right. But, uh, yeah, it, it hurt him. I mean, he could have said, uh, I was doing the speed limit and uh, this one caught in front of me with no time whatsoever for me to react, but that wasn't the facts. So right. facts uh, came out and uh, he testified truthfully and the jury felt that he he had some responsibility for what happened to him. Right, right. Yeah, and I, I think with issues like that, you've just got to hit them uh, head on. And and you're right. I mean, just your clients just have to be absolutely honest about everything because, you know, if they ever get caught stretching or um, not telling the truth, uh, it sinks the case. It, you're, you're correct. It, if a client is caught lying, then he could be testifying truthfully about 95% or 99% of the case. But if he's lying about 1% of the case, the jury's going to gonna burn them yeah yeah exactly exactly tell the truth oh yeah i mean there's there's no doubt um you know the other interesting thing that i thought so you know this is obviously a severe injury and um you know and he i think you said he had four surgeries multiple blood transfusions i mean they had to do a lot to save what they could of his leg and yet within i think seven weeks later he's back on the job uh doing air traffic control is that um, which seems pretty amazing to me. Yeah, you know, um, just by way of background, and I'm sure that you can relate to what I'm saying, I have so many clients over the years who have said to me, will it help out my case if I stay longer? Or, um, you know, should I go back to work? Uh, and I always tell my clients, I've been doing this long enough that I can be a little bit sarcastic. With right. I always say, are you independently wealthy? (laughs) Invariably, I don't think too many of my clients are independently wealthy. Why I say, well, if you're not independently wealthy and you need to go and you need to make ends meet, you need to make a dollar to put food on your family's table and get back to work as soon as your doctors say that you are capable of going back to work. It's not going to help out your case to uh, stay out longer than you should. Jurors are going to think that you're a malingerer. Uh, and uh, they they want to they want to be fair and award heroes. They don't want to be so kind to those that they think 
are looking to manipulate the system. Uh, and Kevin Barrett went back to work uh, without a limb. Uh, and at that point in time, he did not even have a prosthetic. He was on crutches, uh, I think within 17 weeks uh, of when uh, he had this incident. And I think the jury sincerely appreciated that. You know, they, they looked on him as being a real stand-up guy. Right. Well, because we've talked about a few times how, I mean, what I can't remember what case we were just talking about, Steve, where the defense basically tried to hold it against the plaintiff that she must not have been that hurt because she continued to work long hours. Right. Um, as a traveling nurse, I think, which basically she had to, as you point out, most of our clients have to work. Um, but. You know, so they're in this situation of, of where if they don't look, they can don't work. They can look like a malingerer. And if they do work, then it can be used to say they weren't in, su- in certain circumstances that they weren't hurt that bad. But I thought I thought what you did, Michael, was really effective in like just sort of reading what you said about Kevin and, and what he went through and him returning to work. I was like, I like this guy. Mm-hmm. I want it like yeah. I was rooting for this guy. Yeah, I mean, uh I tell all my clients the same thing. So get back to work as quickly as you possibly can. Yeah, yeah. You that much more when they see that you're not looking to take advantage of the situation. Yeah, I, uh, I was when you said that, Ivan. I was thinking about just like this guy's. You know, one thing that you described to the jury. Uh, I can't remember if it was in the, your opening or closing, but uh, the, he comes from a family of uh, uh, people in you know involved with uh, airplanes. Correct. Most of them are air traffic controllers. Some, you know, his dad was a radar engineer. So yeah, you could just imagine them all. You know sitting around the table talking about, you know, what, you know, almost happened that day or what, what, you know, happened right. in the tower. Yeah. You, you, you said you can imagine like something about like what their conversations are like, sure. like Thanksgiving dinner. And I love right. that because it just so like gave him and his whole family a personality, even, even for, for us, we're just reading basically what happened after the fact. So I have to imagine it was especially effective for people who were actually in the courtroom. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I hope so. Uh, but I, I think it's important that uh, uh, if, if you have a client with a really nice background that the jury know about the client's upbringing and the family and so forth. So yeah, father was in court for a couple of days of the trial. Uh, mother was in court. Uh, wife was in court. And so, uh, you know, I, I uh, wanted the jury to see uh, that this com- this person comes from a family of real people, of substance. Yeah. And, uh, you know, back to that point about, you know, if you have a client ask them that, I always say, uh, just like just like you do, you know, but I, I, I just tell them to get on with their life and uh, and and live their life. Don't don't rely on some lawsuit because there's no guarantees in in the courtroom. I mean, there, you know, you had a good case. There's a good chance you're going to do well. But, you know, I think any trial lawyers had a case where they thought, you know, they had a great case and yeah. poured out. So uh, I always tell my clients, do do not, you know, live your life around, you know, what's going to happen in this lawsuit. I, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that some younger attorneys listen to this podcast and they understand exactly what you just said, Steve, because it's so important. I tell my clients, do not let this lawsuit Govern how you live your life. Get on with your life. When this lawsuit comes to fruition, hopefully we'll have a nice outcome. But in the meantime, move forward. Yeah. 
don't dwell on this lawsuit or on your past. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think that's excellent advice. And also, you know, one of the things that I, I kind of learned as I went along, but, and I'm still learning about the time you need to spend with a client at the beginning of a case in terms of managing their expectations and preparing them for what might happen and what might not happen. And I think it can be so easy for us because we're all busy to just start focusing on drafting a complaint or, you know, checking the boxes, getting the medical records and not spending that time with each and every client, you know, to make check in with them as people and kind of help them with what to expect in this process to the extent yeah. that can be predicted. Yeah. You know, it just reminds me of one thing that I've, I've tried to do a little bit during this pandemic is to uh, go through my list of clients uh, on a daily basis and just check in with clients, see how they're doing, uh, and let them know uh, that I'm thinking about them and that if there's anything I can do for them uh, to let me know. Uh, and uh, just some clients say, you know, you're a really unusual lawyer. Not not too many people that I've heard of would ever do something like that, but I'm not doing that because I'm trying to be different, but because I just want our clients to know that we're thinking of them. And yeah. appreciate that. No, and they really do. And and that's, you know, we, we throw this around all the time, but we always have to remind ourselves that, you know, for all of our clients that we represent, they're going through the worst thing that's ever happened to them in their life. Um, you know, we've got other cases to work on, but this is this is their one case and this is the worst thing that's ever happened to them in their life. So it just uh, helps not to forget that. You know, it's such a good point. And just to you know, to take that to the next level. I, I can't begin to tell you how many times I have been retained by a client because their existing attorney does not call them back. Right. Yeah. You know, and I, I just don't understand that. Yeah. It's just call them back on your way home to your house at the end of the day. I'm just returning your phone call. I have nothing new to really report to you, but I'm giving you the courtesy of a return phone call. Is there anything I can answer for you? They just want to know that you're there. And it turns that, you know, don't return phone calls and then lose uh, good cases or significant cases. Other attorneys have nobody to blame but themselves. Yeah, well, and it, you know, and I'm sure you've seen this being on the grievance uh, and judicial screening committee. Uh, we have a partner who also sits on a similar committee here. And I think the statistic is the number one reason why lawyers get complaints Correct. about them is not returning phone calls. You're right. Something as simple as that, right? Yeah, we have cell phones. Just get on your goddamn cell phone and call back. <laughs> right, right. It's not, it's not yeah. a big I, issue. I do think that's something that you come out of, de depending on what you do first, when you come out of law school, it's something that you kind of have no clue how to do. Like you're not taught about client interaction really at all in law school. And I'm, I remember when I first started practicing, being a little afraid to admit to clients like, nothing has happened in your case or, you know, for them to ask me a question that I didn't know the answer to, you know, especially when I was first practicing. But I think you're exactly right that it's more just about them hearing from you and knowing that you're there. I mean, it's never been a problem when I've just said, sorry, like, you know, that right. especially during these times, like, you yeah. know, that I'm sorry, nothing is really happening. There's a, our options are limited to make something happen, but that's all of our clients have been like, okay, you know, yeah, yeah. it's just they want to they hear. They just it. want to hear. Yeah. And nowadays in New York, I don't know about in your neck of the woods, but in New York, clients can track the progress of their cases 
online. So you yeah. tell them one thing and they find out online that you're not being truthful with them, then you're going to be the subject of a grievance. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, let's let's get back to the uh, yeah. versus Smith case. The um, one one thing I wanted to mention is so uh, after you you uh, prevailed in the liability phase and you you said that they had uh, uh, given um, uh, I, I think what I saw was sixty three percent against the defendant thirty seven like that yeah uh, thirty seven percent yeah. And, um, and and then you move into your damages uh, phase, and it sounds like the defendant wasn't there for the damages phase. Is that right? The defendant was not there for the damages phase. How does the defense lawyer? Uh, I mean, I, I if, if you know, just if you see the defendant not there as a jury, you just kind of think you're not taking this seriously. I mean, what, how does the defense lawyer explain that? <laughs> you know. Hopefully very gingerly and very politically, but listen, I've had cases where my, my client doesn't sit uh, in the courtroom because uh, they don't want to rehear something that opens up some sore wounds. But I let the jury know my client is right outside the other side of the door. Yeah. Uh, he or she uh, doesn't want to be in the courtroom right now, but they're right in the courthouse so that, you know, you know that this means the world to them. Um, but uh, uh, in this case, the defendant just took off. Didn't really matter. Uh, and, uh, you know, I may mention that in my summation. Right. It's, right. In this case, it's so important to this, to this one. Where is she right now? Why yeah. is she uh, in the courtroom during uh, the, the trial on damages? And why isn't she in the courtroom right now during the summation? You know, if I'm a good defense attorney, I'm going to say, listen, don't. Don't blame my client uh, for that. You know, if my client's at fault for what happened here, yes. Uh, but like, like the plaintiff, she also is trying to get on with her life. And to have people talk about her is very painful. And that's why she's not with us right now. So, I, you know, if I'm a good creative defense attorney, I'll certainly make an argument that right. hopefully resonates with the jury as to why uh, my client's not in the courtroom right now. Yeah, you know, and we we talked to the right thing, and I really don't think they focus too much on where one of the parties is right now. They're ultimately trying to do the right thing regardless of the presence of any one person in the courtroom at that time. Yeah, it's one of the things we talk a lot about on this uh, podcast because for plaintiffs, like you said, there there can be reasons why you don't have your client in the courtroom. Um, you know, whether or not they, uh, you know. Uh, it's too painful for them to sit or, or they you know suffered a catastrophic brain damage or what whatever it may be and so there's a decision not to have them in the courtroom but that's certainly something that you take the time to explain to the jury why they're not going to be in the courtroom and and why they're not going to be there the whole time and that they'll be there for parts of it uh you know things like that but uh it it just seems different from the other side if a defendant is not willing to to sit there and um and, and and be there while the jury's there deciding. A case. Yeah, I would think so too. When how many times have we talked about that? If there's a if there's a question that you know that is probably out there, and if you don't answer it for the jury, then they're going to answer it for themselves. Yeah, yes. that's right. All the time, that happens all the time, and there's it's impossible to leave, uh, you know, to cover every possible thought that's going on in a juror's mind. Sometimes you just keep your fingers crossed and you hope for the best. 
<laughs> right, right, exactly. Well, and you take your time and, you know, and I always make sure to tell the jury, you know, look, I may have explained things or over explained things multiple times. It's only because I felt like it was so important. I wanted to make sure that that everybody heard it, it you know, and so if you got annoyed that I was mentioning something so much, uh, I apologize for that. But, um, you know, we're just trying to do our job. But, you know, sometimes... Right. I've had juries at the end tell me, you know, you spent too much time on a subject. And then I've had, when I feel like I beat, uh, beat the horse to death, they're like, you should have spent more time on that subject. I'm like, ah, yeah, exactly. So hard to know. I mean, if, <laughs> if you stop wondering, uh, you know, w- whether you could have done things differently at the outcome of a trial, then you shouldn't be practicing trial uh, work for a living, you know? Yeah. Don't yeah. second guess yourself, then you're in the wrong profession. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, let's, I wanted to talk about, um, your, your closing and, and how you sort of frame the damages for the, uh, for the case. Uh, cause I thought you did a, a number of really good things, especially right up front. Um, you know, with, in talking about damages and, and that you use the concepts of full and fair justice, uh, and that, and that, you know, it, it takes courage to sit on a case where there's millions of dollars at issue and that that's what it's going to take for him. Uh, you know, to receive his full and fair justice or, or his fair value. And then one thing that I really liked uh, was you, you told the jury there was two ways they could look at this case. And, you, and there was only two ways. And one way was give him everything he wants because you're sympathetic. And then you told him, I don't want you to do that. That's not the right thing to do. And then the other way, uh, you know, is to give him what's fair and, get, you know, give him, you know, the right amount of compensation is fair. But I, I, I love sort of... Uh, putting that in two choices and, and, and both choices have them, you know, awarding significant sums to your client, um, you know, but telling them, you know, to, to set aside the sympathy. I, I really liked the way you did that. Yeah. I mean, you know, ultimately, uh, ultimately you kind of want to be sympathetic. Right. But on the other hand, you want them to understand that the verdict has to be based upon the evidence and nothing but the evidence. So it's kind of a double-edged sword, uh, but I always tell the jury, don't give me a verdict because you're sympathetic to my client. My client's had all the sympathy uh, he could ever possibly ask for from his mom, his dad, his wife, so forth. He's looking to get properly compensated based upon the harms and losses uh, that have befallen him. And that's what we need to focus on. Um, So one thing I I, I was... uh, I wanted to ask you about is so basically through the different types of damages, you, you talked through uh, past pain and suffering, uh, the future pain and suffering that he was going to have to go through, and then his medical expenses and the life care plan. And what I thought was interesting from the jury is that they gave you less than what you asked for for past pain and suffering and future pain and suffering, but gave you much more. Uh, than what you right. asked for on your life care figure, plan huh? and medical expenses. Yeah. And I was just, I was wondering, did you get a chance to talk to the jury and find out what the, you know, how they were coming up with yeah, that? Yeah, I did. And, uh, you know, I even mentioned that in, in my summation. Uh, I mentioned that, you know, I'm, I'm giving you a bare bones life care plan. And you and I know that the technology for prosthetics or for other sorts of uh, devices that we rely upon is changing constantly. Uh, and what's working today may be obsolete 10 years from now. And 20 years from now, you might look back on something like that and, and say, they were using that as prosthetics back then? I said, so, you know, I won't, I'm giving you bare bones conservative numbers because that's what my expert 
uh, was instructed to do. And I don't want to give you these overinflated uh, ideas, uh, but just keep in mind uh, as you deliberate that, you know, these are very, very conservative numbers. And you know, as well as I do, that technology changes all the time. Uh, and probably the prosthetic that Kevin's going to be using 20 years from now is not going to be the same one that he's using right now or even 10 years from now. And these things are costly. Uh, and I guess somehow that resonated with the jury. They gave me almost twice what I asked for uh, in terms of uh, future medical. Go figure, right? Yeah. <laughs> that really caught me by surprise. But, right, right. <laughs> you know, I mean, I love it only because, uh, you know, who am I to look a gift horse in the mouth? But uh, I did try to be conservative uh, in, in the way I presented the case because I'm in a conservative venue. Uh, and uh, I don't want to offend jurors. Uh, and so my life care plan was with very conservative numbers. All right, Yvonne, this next company that we're talking about is literally a company that has been with our firm since the beginning. And I don't think we could survive with because every time we go to trial, we always have Bob or Liz, or one of the other technicians who is helping us do our trial presentations. And I'm talking, of course, about legal technology services. And you can find them at ltsatlanta.com. Yes, they do all things visual. That's their big tagline. And it's definitely true. They have saved our bacon so many times and can help you out with so many more things uh, that you might even, you know, not even think about. I mean, they can help you with demonstratives for trial. They can help you with video depositions, day in the life videos, stuff for your website. The settlement videos, witness statements. I mean, literally it is anything technology based or as Yvonne already said, all things visual. They are huge at helping with demonstratives that we put in front of the jury. They are friends of the firm and have just done tremendous work for us over the years. So pick up the phone or get on the computer and look up Bob, Melanie, or Liz at ltsatlanta.com. And you can also call them at 770-554-1633. That's Legal Technology Services at ltsatlanta.com. And Steve, don't forget, we have a gift for our listeners. Oh, yeah. I totally told you to remind me and I totally screwed it up. So, yeah. So what I forgot to tell our listeners is that um, if you mention the Great Childs podcast, when you call into legal technology services or write into them, uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. So mention the podcast, Great Trials podcast, and uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. And again, that is LTSAtlanta.com. Legal technology services. Uh, give them a try. Another thing that you did that I, I liked in a, a, is that when you uh, told the jury you were going to talk about how to compensate, you asked for permission from the jury uh, to talk to, you know, we said with, with your permission, I'm going to I'm going to speak on this. I just like that idea of of, um, of sort of asking the jury if it's OK to speak about uh, damages, even though that's, you know, what you were going to do. So I was just wondering about that, that concept and where you came up with that from. Yeah. So I'm not taking credit for that. Let me tell you something. <laughs> right. Uh, I've attended so many, uh, Keenan trial Institute courses. Uh, I'm a firm believer in, in what's taught there and uh, how everything is focus grouped and focus grouped and focus grouped. Uh, and I focus group a lot of my cases that have gone to trial, if not all of them. Uh, and, uh, I wasn't reinventing the wheel here. Uh, I was taking that right from 
the, the, the articles and the outlines that I've gotten over the years from attending the courses, uh, and I used it in my summation. I used it in virtually every part of my trial, my opening, my directs, my cross-examinations, and my summation. Yeah, I, I, I really like that. Um, well, well, speaking about focus groups, did you do a focus group in this case? And what, I, what I did, did not. Uh, you did not, okay. okay. I did not, no. no. Um, I, I should have. Um, I think probably because I'm more of a disciple now than I was back then. I wasn't focus grouping as much uh, on cases. And, you know, like... Like everybody else, sometimes I'm a little bit overwhelmed in my practice. Uh, and it's really, I mean, I, I'm handling about 102, 103 cases at any given time. Just yeah. there's not enough hours in the day to focus group uh, one case 15 different times. It just, I just can't, you know. So I try to make the best out of the situation, but uh, can't do it all. Yeah, yeah. I've learned Wait, that we- a long time ago. Yeah, we've talked about that. I can't remember who we were talking to, Steve, that they had mentioned they like to focus group a case like very early. And I'm like, that sounds great, but I cannot imagine ever like (laughs) managing to find the time to do that. It's a major commitment. And, uh, you know, if you do that, then something's got to give. Right, 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 exactly. Some other part of your your practice or your personal life or your kids or something is going to have to give, uh, spend that kind of time focus grouping every aspect of the case. And, you know, through the Keenan Trial Institute, they want you to do 20 focus groups on every single, (laughs) you know, unfortunately there's just not enough hours in the day. And, and I don't want to spend every waking minute of my life doing nothing but focusing on focus. (laughs) Focus Right. Right. (laughs) So, I mean, that's, that's the reality. So um, I'm saying that, but that's real. Absolutely. I I, I, I mean, I think every uh, every busy trial lawyer understands that because, you know, I I haven't met one who uh, who does their job right, who isn't uh, just extremely busy. Um, But um, I wanted to ask about. um, So, Kevin, at the time of the incident, I I don't think he was married. He was was he single at the time, but then he had got married. He had had a kid had a child and his wife was pregnant again. So, I mean, you could really tell that this was, uh, you know, somebody who was, you know, still trying to do everything that he could to, to live his life. And, I, and, you know, and I, and I do agree with you. I think jurors uh, appreciate that. Um, uh, did that cause any, any issues that the fact that he was seemed to be moving on with everything? No, I, as a matter of fact, in, to the contrary, I think it kind of hurt. I think it helped him out because uh, I, I truly believe that jurors want to help out those who are trying to help out themselves. Right. Right. And Kevin was trying to help out himself. As a matter of fact, I mean, he's working for the FAA right now as a wife and two uh, kids and is getting on with his life. But, uh, you know, if uh, you have a client that's really looking to move forward, uh, they feel like, Hey, I want to help this person out. Uh, and uh, that's that's the sentiment you want every juror to have with your client. You want the jurors to feel like I'm helping this person out. Right. I'm feeling good about it, too. They feel good about what they're doing. Uh, then it's going to reflect in the outcome of the, of the verdict. Yeah. Yeah. Um, related to that, for the for for the sort of the intangible damages, uh, how did you handle that? 
at trial, you know, did you do a lot of that with Kevin? Did you do that with some of his treaters? Did you kind of leave a lot of that unsaid and let the jury kind of wrestle with it? You know, so um, that's a real good question, Yvonne. And, and let me uh, say uh, this in response. There are certain types of injuries where you kind of want to let the juror's imagination take over. Um, and, you know, with a guy uh, who loses his leg, you don't really need to tell a jury what it's like to be losing a, to have a, a no limb now. They know. Uh, they know how even just, you know, the basic necessities, getting out of a shower uh, in the morning, uh, getting into a car must be really difficult for somebody who's missing a limb. Um, you know, then the same could be for somebody who has a facial disfigurement. You know, what's it like when you, that person's got to look into the mirror uh, and be a disfigurement? And I'd rather let their imagination run with the case than hear from my client because I think that they become a little less sympathetic when they hear from my client. So um, my experience has been to keep my plaintiff on the stand as little as I possibly can. And I surround uh, my client by uh, disinterested witnesses right. or by experts. I kind of bury my client into the, the line of witnesses who testify. And it's rare that I keep a plaintiff on the stand for uh, more than, you know, 30, 45 minutes. Uh, in, in this case, I did something interesting uh, in the courtroom is I put a chair in front of the jury box and I asked the court for permission to have my client sit in that chair. Uh, so he stepped down from the witness box, sat in the chair, and then I stood back in, in, in the back of the courtroom towards the entrance and I let my client talk to the jury. I would feed him with questions every few minutes, but otherwise I let him... Uh, speak to the jury on his own, almost like a narrative, but I wasn't allowing him to testify now because that would have been objectionable. Right. And uh, I never uh, had him expose his stump. That's pandering. These jurors know what it's like to be missing a leg. I didn't display it. I didn't have photographs of it. Uh, I didn't want them to think that I was looking to uh, really um, do something that was grotesque when it's not necessary. So that's how I, I dealt with uh, that type of issue. Yeah. And, and I, I agree with that. And in, you know, the, um, uh, you know, the, the idea of you want to see a client who's, who's trying to, you know, do everything that they can is, is in the same vein as you don't, nobody, even at, in, even in a trial, <laughs> nobody likes to listen to somebody who sounds like they're just complaining all the time even in horrific, you know, circumstances. Um, so I, I agree with you. I never like to have my client, uh, you know, stand up and talk too much. Sometimes I'll pick out maybe like a story or a story or two just to bring home a point. But I use, you know, family members or friends or coworkers, you know, yes, other people who can talk about them. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I, I really want the jury to hear from my client as little as possible, unless my client is just so likable that right ever is going to say anything negative about it but even you still have to wonder no matter how likable your client is whether it's going to be one juror mm -hmm. rubbed the wrong way so that's, that's right. why i tend not to keep my clients on the stand for any more than 
like I said, 30, 45 minutes at max. I don't, I can't think of the last trial I had in the last 10 years where my clients been on the stand for an hour. It's just not happening. Right. Right. What, one of the things you said in the closing was that you uh, you had asked Kevin how he what, what he wants the jury to think of him, and he or and what you told the jury was is the man who has guts, uh, and uh, and I, and I, that just sort of goes in that whole concept of uh, you know somebody who's doing everything they can to uh, to put their life together, not worrying about the fact that he doesn't have a leg anymore, uh, and is still living his life, and then the, you know it, it makes a makes a jury really understand. Uh, you know, this is somebody they want to help. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I do that, see, with a lot of my clients. Uh, I say to my clients, I say, what would you want me to say to the jury about you in my summation? What's the one thing that you think that they should know about you more than anything else? I'll let them know. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, the word that Kevin used was not guts. Uh, it was a little bit... <laughs> stronger than that uh, but he wanted the jury to know uh he's a tough guy uh and he's moved on with his life and uh don't feel sorry about me don't feel sorry about me i'll be okay uh, and that's what i told the jury don't feel sorry about him he'll be okay i do also like just going back for a second what you said michael about um I think it's especially good advice for newer lawyers about taking into account, especially for the damages side of a case, the type of injury, because I think a newer lawyer could approach it maybe a little bit more formulaically. Um, you know, and like you said, amputation and disfigurement is different. I mean, I, you know, you do have some injuries where I think damages case needs to be explained a little bit more to a jury because they really d can't, maybe don't know what all is involved with a certain type of, of injury or illness versus Correct. versus this is, I mean, it's just horrifying to, I think anyone to try to imagine. Yeah, I mean, so I, I represent a lot of brain injured uh, clients. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, maybe you can see a brain injury on an MRI or a DTI MRI. Uh, but for the most part, Hey, the person looks normal. They're yeah. broken. They're walking, so what could really be wrong with them? Uh, and you know, that's what you need to tell a story uh, through coworkers uh, or through uh, people that neighbors, uh, clergy, uh, pastors, somebody other than the plaintiff. You know, let uh, the jury know who uh, this person was before this occurrence and who this person is now. Uh, but don't do it through your own client. Once they, right. they're, they're going to see your client and they're going to not like you. So I never let my client tell the story. You know, always coming from other witnesses. My client is just a little, just a, a spoke in the wheels. Uh, right, right. Everything else is coming from everybody else. And, you know, if it's a back injury, if it's a fracture, the injury, how it's impacted my client is never coming from my client. It's coming from... Uh, people that they work out with, people that they exercise with, uh, that they go to nightclubs with or whatever, never coming from my client. Yeah. I also, I wanted to ask you about one, the, what you said about how you will, when you put your client up, in, in addition to keeping it short, you'll do it in the middle of witnesses that are, you know, fairly kind of straightforward sort of 
bland for lack of a better word witnesses is that because you don't it feels less manipulative if they, if they come after maybe somebody in their family yeah um yeah it it, it probably is um i i want i want the jurors to, to hear more from people that have less of an axe to grind all right yeah. uh, and i don't want my client to be the first person <laughs> to understand I want him to be the last person on the stand. I want somebody who I think uh, is going to be perceived as pretty uh, impartial and neutral, uh, being the first on the stand, like a physician uh, or uh, like a coworker, you know, or somebody. I mean, if the person uh, used to go to the same deli every morning uh, on the way to work, I might bring in the deli owner. What's, what was he like uh, before this? And what was he, what's he like now? Uh, those are the people that leave the best impressions. And so, yeah, that's why uh, I tend to bury my client in the middle of the pack, unless my client is just so impressive as when it's, I've had, I can think of one woman lonely years who was beautiful in every which way. Uh, and I didn't really need to have witnesses surrounding her. She was so compassionate. But otherwise, uh, I tend to build a fort, so to speak, around my client. And my client is in the middle of Fort, and the the armor is on both sides of my client. Right. Uh, you know, one thing I, I forgot to ask you in, in the liability phase of the case, did the defendant take the stand? And I guess, how did the defendant come across to the jury? Yeah, no, the defendant came. Uh, she was not an unlikable person. Yeah. She came across as pretty sympathetic, you know. Um, she never saw, uh, I think if I'm not mistaken, it was a couple of years ago, but I don't think she saw him or she saw him and he was in the distance and she thought she had plenty of time, uh, to clear the intersection, which is what I hear in 80% of these motorcycle cases right. uh, where people making left turn, uh, he was so far off, uh, he was speeding or, you know, he just came out of nowhere. Uh, right. Time and time again on the motorcycle cases, uh, even though the person had an unrestricted view and could see what was there to be seen, they never saw my client coming directly at him. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, I thought that she was pretty well received uh, in a liability. And they also had an accident reconstructionist who uh, was pretty credible as well. And I didn't bring in an accident reconstructionist. Right. Okay. Okay. Sometimes it's better not to bring in an expert right. to testify against their expert. I'd rather do a good job of hurting their expert uh, and, again, leave it up to the jury from that point on. Right, and it allows you to handle it on cross-examination. Exactly. So you can put up the points you want. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Um, well, uh, Michael, this has been uh, just a great conversation. Is there anything else that you want to make sure that our listeners know about uh, the Barrett versus Smith case that we haven't had a chance to tell them? You know, I, I, I really don't try to be too fancy in, in my cases. Um, I try to just lay it out uh, and I try to be very straightforward with the jury. Uh, and I, you know, I haven't tried cases for so many years now. I'm really careful about never offending uh, a jury's a juror's sensibility of what's fair, or what's right and what's believable and what's not believable. And once you try to sell them on something that's not going to fly, you've hurt your client's case. You've done a disservice to your client. Mm -hmm. yeah. And 
that's not the way to approach any single case. Yeah, yeah. So just be straight. Always respecting the jury, uh, you know, I think is uh, is absolutely vital. Without a doubt. And, yeah. And, you know, and let them know that you're, you know, you're there working together on, you know, what to find what's right for your client. And uh, Without a doubt. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Well, Michael, thank you so much for, uh, for coming on the show. It's been a, uh, been a great, um, uh, a great interview. And let me just say, and, uh, and I have to say that probably thinking about a, a deli owner as a damages witness yeah. might be the most New York thing to happen on the show <laughs> so far. <laughs> well, I, I That's should, right. We don't have, I can say a bagel place too, but you don't have bagel places. <laughs> Oh, we got some of them, but I, you know, oh, yeah. I, not good ones. Not, I, good not ones. in pizzerias as well, right? <laughs> no. I, uh, I tried one case in, uh, in New Brunswick, New Jersey years ago. And, uh, there was a, a bagel shop downstairs from where I was staying. Um, and so every morning before, uh, court, I would go get a bagel, talk to the bagel shop owner, you know, and then I'd, you know, I'd head over to the courthouse, but it was sort of, sort of my routine. So now I can, you know, being up in New Jersey, uh, really made me understand, you know, always stopping there, getting your bagel, getting your coffee and, uh, and then, and then going on. They say it's in the water. Maybe that's true. I'm not sure, but I just know that for some reason we have, uh, really superior bagels up here on the East coast. It's oh, true. Yeah. It's yeah, just absolutely. not the same. It's just not yeah. the same down here. Yeah. No, that's no. <laughs> That is absolutely. Thank true. you very much, guys. Yeah, well, let me let me <laughs> remind everybody we've been talking with Michael Levine, uh, who's a partner at, at uh, Rapaport Glass Levine and Zulo in Long Island, New York. Also with offices in Manhattan, and you can look up Michael at rglclaw.com or at Motorcycle Mike Esq Esquire. Uh, dot com. So MotorcycleMikeESQ.com. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, we really enjoyed it. I did too. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks, Devon. It was an honor and a real pleasure. And I appreciate uh, being given that. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, 
who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go, and Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.